Chapter Eleven of Interventions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blazely Dragon. Interventions by Georgia Wood Pangborn, son of the woods. There are still log cabins here and there in the mountains, but they are as shy as birds' nests in Central Park and is simply built. The cottages and hotels that have intruded there are not shy and are highly complex. Yet for the most part they have at least had the courtesy to put on the green and brown livery of the forest. The grand hotel, however, is staring white and of Greek design. Looking up from the lake it appears mostly an affair of pillars. It would look well on some southern shore with palms and sandy beaches about it. Up here in the woods it is outrageous. And yet, that depends. It is rather fine, too, in a way. At twilight, while the late color is still in the sky, and the windows show their many orange oblongs between the great pillars, and the orchestra tentatively begins in the ballroom, dinner being over. Then, if you bring your canoe to a quiet nook in the lake, not too near, the big house, garish hotel, becomes as wild an elfin as any other manifestation of the woods, a moonlight glamour that will vanish with other mists at sunrise. The cedars in its near neighbourhood have been thinned, the ground soddened, and rustic seats and summer houses are scattered about. But it is better not to venture too far into its groves without your wits, or these cedars will unexpectedly close up their ranks. If you go among them at dusk, and come to yourself when too far away to hear the hotel band, and you are unversed in the ways of the woods, and not dressed for the part, there is likely to be annoyance for yourself and your friends before you get back. So at least it happened to Mrs. Brandon one evening. Entering the grove with heavy trouble sagging her usually careless soul, she was overtaken by a sudden storm of tears and having once made a beginning luxuriously gave herself up to woe pressing blindly into the forest careless of the thorns that caught her delicate lace overdress snatched her hair awry and made altogether a strange figure of her before she realized that the dark silence of the forest had shut in upon her then she struck a match from her cigarette case and read ten o'clock upon her tiny watch listened vainly for the triple beat of the hotel orchestra, and knew that she and Mount Philem were alone together. Now Mount Philem is but an infant mountain, one of the family of old Powasket, who is a mountain and so tall that he does not take off his winter's night cap in spring until the pine woods upon his flanks are full of arbutus. Besides Powasket, as our town sees them, Phlegm is but an inconsiderable scallop on the skyline, a ripple at the edge of the big mountain garment. Yet, were it not for the comparison, he would make by himself a very respectable small giant. Mrs. Brandon had seen many mountains and seas in her day, but had never before been quite alone with even a small one. She forgot the sorrow that had driven her so unceremoniously forth into the night and fell silent for a moment, like a child who after a space of futile whimpering is really about to cry. 
then she began to scream whereat one may imagine all the fury and feathery ears upon mount phelem pricked in astonishment and the leaves stirred by small quiet persons in stealthy retreat even phelem himself held his breath for a moment like a sleeper half waked by some unimportant matter then exhaled a long sweet and contented sigh through his cedars and pines and slept again under the faint light of the half-moon while mrs brandon having screamed herself out obeyed the instinct of all embarrassed animals since the first lions roaring after their prey did seek their meat from god and clung motionless silent and alert to a shaggy cedar trunk it is amazing how cold a midsummer night can be upon a mountain she drew the silken train of her dinner gown about her shoulders and trembled within it for the space of an hour at the dark moment when the moonlight altogether withdrew from the tree-tops she roused to a primitive and sensible action drawing together some pine needles and dry leaves she lit them with a match from her cigarette case small vices are of advantage occasionally and spread her little shaking hands weighted with cold rubies and diamonds to the blaze the nearest trunks were warmly splashed with firelight but the opaquely black gulfs beyond these were worse than before i forget she thought wearily whether fire attracts animals or scares them away but perhaps being eaten up is no worse than freezing to death and so with what philosophy she might she waited for the morning on that side of phelem opposite the grand hotel is one of those shy log cabins not a temporary hunter's hut but a real habitation wherein the great matters of birth and death have been transcended as well as commonplace minute of living the location must have been a trapper's choice in the first place and the steep acres of corn and potatoes an afterthought of changing time and customs mount phelem is hardly a person to take kindly to the corn and potato habit there are many tentative pines and maples among the weeds that spring up in the furrows perhaps phelem likes the habit of humanity itself no better than that of corn and potatoes for one winter he and powasket together filled that little valley so full of snow and zero weather that these and other causes wiped out all but one of a family named freschette they spared alois who thereafter throve in his loneliness like a hardy seedling from whose roots a number of weaker brethren have been torn for such is the survival of the fittest alois woke to the before sunrise clamor of a nest full of bluebirds above his window who were scheduled for flight at that hour he yawned rose on his elbow and regarded with a sleepy smile the dewy oblong green twilight that marked his open door now that all his crowding family had forever gone out through that door he saw no object in closing it except against storms and winter the light growing he fished out a battered geometry from beneath the sack of pine needles that served him as a pillow some quarter of an hour's scowling and muttering served him with this and then a long sonorous call as of a distant trombone summoned him to seize his milk pail and meet little black lizette who waited him sad-eyed and fragrant with milk in the pink light and the dew her six quarts save for one his breakfast being deposited in the tiny log fortress of a dairy by the brook 
he came back to his house and built his fire and set on the frying pan with slices of bacon in it when this had yielded its fat and was sending up pungent smoke he added thick slabs of indian pudding craftily drew the whole arrangement to a part of the stove where it should sizzle for ten minutes or so without becoming charcoal and went down to the brook for his bath a deep still pool had been naturally fenced off from the shallow turmoil of the brook by the intervening root of an oak shaped like a giant's smooth knee as though a giant sitting on the bank ages ago to cool his feet in the stream had forgotten what he was about and been changed to a tree cold cold as only a mountain brook can be on a midsummer morning alois went in with a shout splashed and grunted until a cloud of clean brown mud was stirred up from the bottom came out and danced upon the moss in the sun until he was dry and then went singing up the hill to his breakfast and all the world nothing more gloriously alive and hungry than himself had it not been for his appetite taking the frying pan upon his knees he ate it quite clean and polished set it down with a sigh and examined his stone jar of cornmeal when his finger plumbing the yellow depth touched bottom before the second joint was covered he became very grave he took his hoe in silence from its nail just outside the door put a book in the pocket of his overalls and marched to his potato field arriving at that place of business promptly at five according to custom the morning was drowsy and lovely developing as the sun rose into one of those days that never fully wake up but stay dreamily abed until twilight the air of the valley was hot and still in the incessant muttering of the brook nothing was said about high ambitions and glorious things that lay beyond a summer's toil with books and vegetables at eight o'clock alois hooked his hoe over the limb of an apple tree and took his book to the borders of the woods he found the dreams of the day however as thick there as in the field and putting ambition aside for the moment he filled his corn-cob pipe with tobacco raised in his own garden and lay on his back among the pine needles his knees crossed and his arms under his head with no loftier thought in his brain than to idly follow the patterns of the pine branches against the sky someone he dreamed called and wept in the forest but he was too sleepy to answer besides in his dream he knew that the calling and weeping were only a dream and nothing to worry about or if it wanted him let it come where he was the leaves parted and a wild tear-stained face looked at him fixedly for a long moment he sat up but the dream instead of being disturbed by the action stepped out into the sunlight he had read of such things calypso and her isle for example and circe and la belle dame sans merci but they were classics classics are marble and greek and do not develop one's imagination into belief his grandmother's stories had been neither marble nor greek and these he had believed her hair hung in two disheveled yellow plaits her arms and throat were bare her gown except where misty rags of lace still clung to it was of silk the color of green flame she conveyed no definite idea of age or youth at first he thought her very young then he was not so sure she might be old with the infinite and unwithering old age of mountains and forests old as time or the greek and marble goddesses of whom he had heard so much in the books that were to take him to college 
as to her beauty it seemed to him complete though in her own world it had long been agreed that mrs brandon's looks were on the wane she wrung her slim hands their jewels flashing in the sun i am lost his brown face was all bewildered as her pale one he rose and removed his shapeless straw hat i am hungry she said he hardly understood one did not connect the idea of hunger with ladies in green who came suddenly out of the forests in midsummer day i came from she began then hesitated she was not sure that she wanted to be directed to the grand hotel just yet she had not lived in the world for the length of time she had lived in it without learning to prize the flavor of novelty so many things had grown stale and bitter from the stale and bitter she had fled weeping into the forest now after a night of amazement she had come out into a morning place with a morning young man in it if she herself by age and experience belonged properly to a later and more arid time of day that was no good reason for foregoing a misplaced hour of youthfulness which fate had thrown in her way i should so dearly love something to eat he made a grave gesture of hospitality in the direction of his house and they walked together across the sunny pasture the tattered hem of her long green skirt rustled over the short grass with the sound of wind among leaves her head dropped and she breathed unevenly like a child that had cried over much almost he expected her to dissolve in the strong light it was noon did that altogether account for her casting no shadow his kitchen as they entered seemed strangely shrunken since he ate his breakfast there and disordered and mean the disheveled lady hesitated in the doorway a silhouette outlined with gold by the sun and held back her ragged skirts then entered slowly with a wary eye upon the rusty and greasy cook-stove and sat down doubtfully upon the only unbroken chair i can fry you some bacon said alois timidly i think she staggered perhaps a glass of milk and some bread it would take so long to cook anything and i don't know when i've been so hungry her voice broke in a little wail he scurried out to his store of milk by the spring and broke a pitcher in his embarrassed haste forgetting unaccountably where his various utensils were kept i haven't any bread he apologized setting the milk before her but here is some cold hasty pudding she made no criticism but ate eagerly and when she had quite finished laid her head upon her arms and wept i was so hungry she explained but this grief for past trouble gave way after a little to contemplation of her gown is there some woman about here no i've got a needle and thread though and a thimble my mother had he brought her these implements in a tin box that had once held tobacco then from a corner on the clock shelf where they had lain undisturbed since his mother loosened her thin black hair for the last time he took a handful of crooked and rusty hairpins his glance lingered upon them in a way she did not at first understand as if he had bestowed a gift of great value she had been about to put them aside with dainty disfavor and perfunctory thanks but something in the rusty evidence of long disuse conveyed the story of their value and she accepted them graciously then alois went out and sat upon his woodpile the silence of midday had fallen upon the birds and there was no wind to rouse the leaves 
the soliloquy of the brook was the only living sound in the gap between the near green shoulder of mount Philem and the blue filmed one of mount powasket billowed other mountains in gradual retreat until the furthest was hardly distinguishable from the pale blue of the sky beyond these he knew lay that world whose many voices plaintive gay solemn or threatening had come to him by way of books and the faint echoes of that small town where he had learned all that he knew as to the town he believed it to resemble that world which lay to the south as the little trout stream whose voice was in his ears resembled the st lawrence towards which it had hurried he knew that his idea of it were vague and might be incorrect in some important respects now out of these unknown blue southern depths had suddenly appeared one whom he might question he had seen others of her kind wearing the sleek and infinitely varied livery of power and wealth as he hoed his beans he had heard with strange stirring of the blood the tally-ho horn of a coachful from the big hotel on the other side of the mountain sometimes as his business took him up or down the slender yellow road he had met them and been pompously questioned on the topography of the country questions which he had answered civilly people who had come from so great a place as new york had a right to some haughtier of bearing just as romans had if ever their stately togas deigned to trail among the peasants vineyards and fields besides he should be among them presently his way to their city was charted stage by stage as any definite journey should be bearing accents he thought he knew very well where his goal lay but with this ambition the sweet glitter and gaiety although he felt their power he had little to do nor was it of the roll of caesar's chariot but of some remoter and finer thing that the horn of the tally-ho had spoken when after an hour's reconstruction the green lady issued from his kitchen she seemed less as if she might have come out of his grandmother's stories or the histories of that remarkable man ulysses and bore instead in her altered gown and coiled hair the unmistakable hallmark of new york but this made her no less mysterious to lois he came down from his woodpile and stood before her with respectful courtesy noting with surprise that she had brought some of his textbooks with her her finger was between the pages of his iliad as though to mark a place you aren't a poser are you a recluse she said you don't look her eyes swept his six feet of lean health as if you were under the doctor's orders no i belong here i'm preparing for college but you live here quite alone yes her eyes still questioned there used to be eight said lois with a melancholy gaze at the silent little house all but me died winter before last her inquisitive eyes were shocked and sorry she turned them away respectfully from his tragedy after a little silence she said i am quite alone too i think i'll stay here till dinner-time if you don't mind i should be less conspicuous if i went in while they're in the dining-room and i'd rather enjoy looking over your greek with you if you would like i was clever once they said they sought the shade of the apple-tree she did not however at once open the books and you lived here and studied she recapitulated inviting further information 
this he now gave with an eager rush as is the way of the solitary and silent when the novelty of sympathy suddenly offers lots of people died that winter i stayed out of school to take care of mother and the baby but the baby only lived a few days then mother died she wanted to i guess she'd been tired of things for a good while but that started father off on a big spree so when the little chaps all got diphtheria there was only me to look out for him and I, I didn't know much so by the time he got back i was the only one left i don't know why it didn't get me perhaps i'm stronger than most when he got here and found everybody gone but me he turned right around and went back and drank himself dead in two days i didn't blame him i was a little crazy too i guess i couldn't stay in the house any more than he could i went up to phlegm and spent the rest of the winter tramping around there and up Pawasket. I'd come home and take care of the cow, and have some milk and curl up beside her to get warm and sleep a little. But I wouldn't go into the house. Then, by and by, spring came, and the first grass. Did you ever notice the first grass in spring? It's as green as your dress. I looked at the grass and went down to the cemetery and fixed up their grave some. And after that I opened the door and made the fire and swept up. By that time I felt more as if I could stand it. So I borrowed an ox team and a plow, and when I had the potatoes in, went back to school. I thought I might as well be doing that as anything else. He stopped, apparently, considering that his narrative came to an end at this point. After a little she asked, And then? Why, I seem to have more time than I knew what to do with. I thought, I might as well keep on and get a college. And when you finish college? She pursued. That's four years ahead he evaded with a shy smile, though which she detected the glimmer of some definitive purpose hunted to its last cover. While she pondered how best to unmask it, a packet of newspaper clippings slipped out of the book in her lap. They were thumbed and ragged. His eyes caught them as they fell, and he seized them as if to hide them, but on second thought he placed them in her hands. I sometimes cut out pieces in the papers that tell about things that ought to be different. I thought maybe by and by, when I got an education, I could get a job among these folks down there that are trying to set things right. But before she had the opportunity to see what they were, he had caught them back and sternly sorted out a number, which he folded together and put in the pocket of his overalls. Some are too bad to even think of, he explained with a kind melancholy wonder in his voice. Among those that he returned she found many turbulent paragraphs on both sides of the labor question. The rest were anecdotes of unsanitary tenement houses, neglected children, sweatshops, and all manner of squalid wrongs and stupid cruelties. You see, he justified himself, there's a lot to do if you give your mind to it. It's a puzzle to know just how to get at it. But I thought maybe after I'd gotten education I could tell better what to do next. Now here, opening another book, he showed pasted inside the cover a half-toned newspaper portrait. There's a man. He's been doing things down your way. My ideal would be to go to him and ask him to put me at something he'd like done. His sophisticated listener gasped at the naivety of the plan. And yet, there had been a primitive directness in the attack which this man had made upon primitive and stagnant evils, he had gone forth as simply as a medieval knight against a dragon, and his victory had been as simple and as epic. 
Alois's plan seemed made of the same stuff. Der she mused, regarding him with new interest. I know your hero, she said. His face took on the dewy wonder of a novice who sees a vision. You know him? I've met him now and then at dinners. What did he say? She laughed. The young expect demigod's words to always be winged. Why, I don't remember. About what other people say, I suppose, at dinner. We, they, she explained delicately, aren't supposed to talk shop at dinner, you know. We have a way of pretending that everything in life is very jolly and gay, and that none of us is in earnest. Perhaps we really think just that. We have to pretend to, at least. I dare say it's a good way as any other. He pretends to? Alois wondered. Oh, yes, at least he was pretending when I saw him. Is this picture like him? Not much. That's made handsome. I suppose for a campaign picture. He's rather gray and tired-looking. I'm sorry. I didn't notice him more. The people I know don't take him very seriously. We are of the easy-going sort. Life is short, we say. And what's the use? Why? She broke out fretfully. What is the use? These things, she touched the clippings, have always existed in one form or another, and always will. People like your idols just stir them up and spread the poison. Why? Let the person who made the world take care of it. The would-be philanthropist and reformer humbly put away his documents and stared. She seemed very lovely and very scornful, and very wise. A weak, unnerving thrill ran through him. He had been thinking well of himself and his aims and of his hero. Were they then nothing? And she had come from the place where the world lived. She ought to know. But her philosophy had made the grasshopper leaping purposefully from a blade of grass to her shoulder, and thence to a buttercup, as important under the warm sun as himself and his ambitions. With something of guilty surprise, the lady observed the reproach and fear in his face, and not at the moment seeing any other way out, sought to justify her statements further. "'Why, look at it,' she said harshly, stretching out a delicate hand towards the quiet hills that were like the patient backs of a sleeping herd of behemoths. "'Look at the mere bulk of the world. Could you move it by pushing with your fists this ground where we sit? No more can you, or your superman, alter men in their troubles. This selfishness and indifference are invincible. What's the use of letting a drowning man drag you down?' She concluded with a kind of satirical pride in having spoken well. "'You mean there's no use in anything?' I didn't quite say that, did I? She wondered if she had. It comes to that, doesn't it? Why, not quite. One may still have a very good time. There's music and pleasant people, and good things to eat and see and smell. No more than that? Many people think that is enough. Very many people think so. I'd rather, he said simply, you told me the truth. Whatever it is, very likely I have wrong ideas. I know it's said you can't believe the newspapers. It's all the truth I know, she maintained uneasily. It, it isn't very nice, is it? But it's the best I have. Then the first thing to do is to make money. He lay down with his hands clasped under his head, his face hidden by his straw hat, and was silent for a long time. At length he sat up and fixed her with a bright stare. You mean, if I worked and made money, I could live the way you people over there at the hotel live? eat and dance and see things and travel. 
see you as as people of your own sort see you why as to that see you he repeated with a curious smile at first i didn't understand what there could be to interest one in living that way there seemed to be no center nothing one could grip but when i look at you i understand better who are you her pulses answered his headlong speech with a jubilant thrill of youth her eyes half closed with the primitive pleasure of holding so fine a thing as this young heart in the palm of her hand and she smiled a smile symbolic of the lure of the world's brightness and of herself the drowsy midsummer enchantment thickened about them alois came nearer awkwardly on his knees do you know he said what i thought when you came out of the woods my head's so full you know of these old greek and latin yarns i'm cramming up on i kept thinking of circe and calypso and all that queer lot but you wouldn't turn people into pigs would you he smiled timidly at his figure of speech then went on what you've been saying sounds a little like it but there are other stories about saints appearing when people were puzzled and needed to be told what to do which are you the green lady opened her lips to speak then shut them without a word frowning at her small glittering hands clasped over the forgotten book in her lap turn people into pigs had one power then to make a difference what right had she to be echoing those bitter futile old phrases that she had heard so often they hung stale in the pure air like the reek of essences they had seemed true enough where she had come from now it was as if a lie and a poison had gone out of her but above all what manner of woman was she to flaunt the last glow of her belated prettiness in the eyes of this boy and use it to shame him out of his innocent ambitions she had seen it set forth in color and music that winter what manner of person it was who had striven to turn parsifal from his mission her cheeks grew as red as the painted ones of poor country must woman be like that always she grappled for an instant with an instinct as old as time and conquered it by another instinct which if we believe in certain things we might claim to be older than time when next her face was visible to him it was softened and maternal what is your name she asked and when he had told her alois i am older than you think i am so old that if my boy had lived he might have been entering college this fall with you perhaps if he had lived i should have been different i might have believed in things as you do i have been telling you not very clearly the sort of argument the world puts up against these ideas of yours but just because i have been in the world longer than you have is no sign that i know it better i am too near it perhaps and out of focus perhaps you get a correcter view of it from here the feverish light of his face was replaced by dismayed ingenious amazement when she disclaimed her youthfulness but this gave place slowly to reverential awe she looked away with a bitter smile it was hard to see the first look fade it might be the last time she would ever see it in a man's face she had renounced much she felt and yet how slight a thing it was too but one values a thing no less because it is evanescent you are as old as my mother but after a few moments of troubled consideration he was able to accept the idea she turned her face quite frankly to the pitless sun and let him read what he liked in the fine traceries about her eyes and mouth 
and he read it with the cruel tactlessness of his age and sex. Then, as a little boy might have done, he took one of her hands and pressed it to his cheek. Do you know, I'm glad about that. I thought you were young like me, and it scared me. Perhaps we better study now, she said evenly. If you are going to be ready for college in the fall, you haven't much time to give up to entertaining chance visitors. He obediently opened his Iliad, somewhere in the fourth book. I'll look up the words, he said companionably, and you translate. And so, with a brief interval for another meal of Indian pudding and milk, the day passed. They kept strictly to the books. Her old facility came back flying. She wondered from time to time at her memory, but did not stop to wonder long for fear of breaking the charm. Once, as her restless fingers wandered in the grass while she read, they plucked a leaf which she had almost torn apart, when she beheld in it the mystic quadrifoil of a four-leaf clover. Alois seemed cheered by the omen, and she pinned it to her dress. As the shadows began to wheel their tips eastward, and the west took on gold, they swung to the conclusion of the fourth book of the Iliad. Then Alois yawned, and clapped his dictionary covers with drowsy triumph. If I only had you to help me every day, he said covetously. You must make the most of me while I last, she said, and plunged into the fifth book. But she plunged alone, for looking up presently to see why a word she had inquired for was not forthcoming, she beheld the philanthropist and reformer sound asleep. And as he lay, his fingers shut in the pages of the dictionary, he might but for his bulk have been a child of ten. She gently abstracted the book and went on with her work, like a beneficent brownie, having recognized the yellow road that was to take her to the hotel. She knew that her departure need not take place for an hour or more. She tore out a fly-leaf and wrote the translation. Something about the berserker Diomed appealed to her and roused her. Why? Fighting of any sort was fine. Of course the boy was right. Half-consciously at first, her translation fell into the martial tread of pedometers. Perceiving this, she erased, coaxed, and paraphrased until she made her English something that might claim to be verse. Then to Diomed, son of Tydeus, came Pallas with strength and daring for his soul, that so he might surpass the other Greeks, and win fame's crown forever on his helm. And on his shield she placed unwearied fire, that he might flame among those lowering host, like Sirius rising from his ocean bath, and so his shining head and shoulders plunged into the thickest transport of the fight. There, she said, chewing her pencil, I'm not so ashamed of that. The evening was now so far advanced that a faint but increasing point of light indicated the evening star, seeing what she knew she must hasten if she would be back at the hotel before the crowds were coming out of the dining-room. The star fitted well in her poem. She looked at it pensively for a while, and then back with a sigh at the young face in the grass. One of her many rings was an emerald, a treasure left from her distant girlhood when she was as young as this boy. This she removed, forcing it gently over the tip of his little finger. Then she shut the four-leaf clover, and her penciled translation between the leaves of the Iliad at the fifth book and turned slowly away. Her face quivered and broke in sudden tears. She hurried back and knelt over him. Her lips touched his hair. Then rising, she ran swiftly across the field, 
her green dress softening into gray with the rest of the shadowed landscape. End of Chapter 11 Son of the Woods Recording by Blazely Dragon